This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to this episode of the Rise Together podcast. I am so excited that today Lolo Jones is with us today. Lolo is an American hurdler and bobsledder who specializes in the 60 meter and 100 meter hurdles. She won three NCAA titles and garnered 11 All-American honors while at Louisiana State University. She won indoor national titles in 2007, 2008, 2009 in the 60-meter hurdles with gold medals at the World Indoor Championships in 2008 and 2010. In bobsled, she won the 2021 IBSF World Championships as a brakeswoman. And this year, she placed first in the 2020 2021 Bobsled World Cup and 2021 IBSF World Championships. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Lolo Jones to the Rise Together podcast. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise, together. Hello. Sorry, we have a new guest too. <laughs> Hi everyone. Sorry, he's like, oh. I'm about to put him in another room because he's like super wanting attention right now. <laughs> this is my dog, Loki. So say hi, Loki. <laughs> what, what what kind of dog is this? This is a mini golden noodle, but he's not that mini because he's pretty strong and yeah, <laughs> he keeps growing. Okay, wait a second. This is very important. Uh, not the reason why we're having this conversation, but in real time, Heidi and I are dog shopping and uh, ah. she... Uh, we actually went and met with a human who had the mother of a litter that was now getting ready to have a second litter. And go- Golden Doodle is the thing that we were looking at. How how are Golden Doodles as dogs? They're, I mean, the reason why they're the thing is because they do not shed. And I'm 100. Allergic, yeah. So I'm allergic to dogs. Uh, my last dog like would make me break out with rashes and itch a lot. And so with him, I don't. And that's amazing if you have dog allergies. Why I don't know is everything is because they're super like just full of energy. So (laughs) had I known that, I maybe would have reconsidered because this dog just does not run out of he always wants to play like he's on top of it. So great quarantine dog is, you know when I got him and was definitely a huge distraction. Good for my mental health is still very good for my mental health just because he keeps me on a schedule. He keeps me active. Like he forces me to go outside on our walks, which is incredible. So he is really good for my mental health, but just be prepared for the high energy. Energizer bunny. That's the thing I've heard is like, it just never, ever runs out of energy. God bless it. I have a mini schnauzer. His name's Jeffrey. And uh, Jeffrey kind of just likes to lounge. Like that's he is the kind of like dog a, I want, but I, that's the kind of dog I want. <laughs> yeah, I messed up and got the opposite of that. 
And it's hard because when I, I am currently training for the Olympics, I come home so tired and the dog has no clue what my job is. And it's just like, you've been gone. Now it's time to play. And I'm like, I can't even walk right now. So, but yeah, it's, they're, they're great dogs. They're very cuddly too. That's another benefit of them. They like to cuddle. They're very affectionate. And so if you, you need that companionship, they're really great for that. I love that you just casually threw out that you got home from training from the Olympics. Cause that's a line that I've never one time got to use in my entire life. Uh, <laughs> I did try, I did try to give a little bit of a, an introduction to you, but would you, in your own words, uh, introduce, how do you introduce yourself to people when you meet them? Uh, do you say, Hey, I just got done uh, training for the Olympics. My name is Lolo. Nice to no, meet you. What, what, I will what, say, what do you say? I'll, say? I'll say I just got back from practice, which sounds really weird because I'm 38 years old. So it's like, most people are like practice. Oh, like what are you in like high school or something? It's like, no, I'm 38 and I'm yeah. Just leaving practice. But that's what I do. Like, you know, not have the whole Olympic thing on me, but um, it's kind of weird. Yeah. It's, I've never imagined I'd be still doing this at this age for sure. But how do I do? How do I introduce myself if I'm in a professional environment? Um, I'm Lolo Jones. I'm a summer and winter Olympian. Or I can say, "Hi, I'm Lolo Jones, a three-time Olympian, three-time world champion." Dang it! I want to say that one time. I just want to say I'm an I'm an Olympian. What What's up? When you say winter and summer Olympian, is that kind of the way that like Bo Jackson would have introduced himself as a football baseball player? Like, is it? I, I don't know enough about the Olympics to know how common or uncommon it feels it, uncommon it is to be yeah. both. So it's, it's very uncommon. And so it's, it's more uncommon to be a summer and winter Olympian than it is to be an Olympic champion. There's only 10 Americans that have competed in the summer and winter Olympics, and they give out more than 10 gold medals at the summer Olympics. So it's a very uncommon stat. So it's like, it's basically, if I want to flex my muscles, I just say, hey, I'm a summer and winter Olympian. My goodness, you're a baller. Also, though, it means that you're probably training all the time, Absolutely. like nonstop training. Yeah, uh, there is a period where I had uh, really no off season. So usually after track season, you'll get a month off to recover your body and just recover from the travels around the world. I went really one for ended one sport, jumped into another, which also was really hard on my body. I started getting a lot of injuries. Uh, just because I was just not resting properly because you can't, if you're always in a sport. So, but it's worked out though. Um, the only time it hasn't really worked out is now that, you know, COVID quarantine hit and then they postponed the Olympic games. Well, that put a huge snag in my plans because when the games are separated, there's about two years in between, which gives me time to transform my body from a track athlete to a bobsledder. So for track and field, I have to be about 135 pounds. For bobsled, I have to be about 167 pounds. So there's a massive weight gain I have to do. Well, when they pushed the Olympics back because of COVID, that meant that there was only going to be like a seven or eight month difference between the games. And it was just impossible. I knew that it would be impossible for me to do compete in both. So I had to pick which Olympics that I kind of wanted per se end my career on. And it was a really tough decision. Let's, it's so crazy because I just today was scrolling through Instagram and I didn't, uh, sports center put up somebody who was running the hundred meters or something as they were qualifying for the games. It's happening in real time. Like people are right now punching their ticket to Tokyo, though it is, as you say, delayed. 
what what is it as you're training you get the news oh we're gonna have to delay the games I, I assume that there's something in working up to being in perfect condition and shape for the trials and the games that when you get that news what like what what goes through your head and how does it alter the way that you're having to prepare for the highest level of competition well at first they didn't actually postpone the game so if we rewind and go back to the original start of COVID, it would, we were like everyone else, not knowing what was going on, trying to navigate this new kind of world. And so at first, just competition started to get canceled. And so, but we still had access to our training facilities and then our training facilities got shut down. And then it's like, so we would go to like high school tracks and then those got shut down. And then they were like, don't meet in groups. So then we couldn't meet with our training partners and we were just trying to train our own. And then they were like, don't go outside. <laughs> So we're then we're like trying to train for the Olympics in our house. And I'm like, how does a runner train for the Olympics inside of their house? Like, what am I supposed to hurdle over my couch? Like, that's just, it's not, this is impossible. And so all the Olympians around the world were getting frustrated because, and Olympic hopefuls, because some athletes had full access to tracks and some had, some were in New York City and a small box-like apartment. And so I actually at that time went on ESPN and was like, look, we need to know what's going on. They need to either postpone or cancel these games because it's, it's an unfair advantage for the athletes. You have some athletes that are getting drug tested. Some are not getting drug tested because they are not allowed. There's a complete shutdown in like Greece or Italy. So I was just like, these Olympics are not going to be fair. And that's the whole thing of the sport is you want to go into the Olympic environment knowing that you had an equal level playground so that you can just go out there and compete. And so when they, they resisted postponing or canceling for a while, and that put the athletes in a lot of pressure because we felt like they were kind of forcing us to not listen to what everyone else is saying. They were, everyone else is saying, shut down, don't meet in groups. And well, the IOC was saying, Hey, the Olympics are still going on. So you had athletes jumping fences, trying to meet with their group still trying to break all these, these rules because they had to stay ready for the Olympics. And then they finally postponed the Olympics, but they didn't say when they were going to postpone them. So then we sat on edge for like another month or so. And then they finally gave us a date that it'd be a whole nother year. And then once they gave us a whole nother year, a lot of athletes put their guard down, took a deep breath, and then finally were able to like quarantine properly and kind of abide by what was going on with around the world. And like in a world where you didn't really have a signal one way or the other, what was going to happen, you had to almost be prepared for any scenario, which seems crazy. But hopefully now that you know, hey, this is what's happening. You know, when you're going, you're able to train in the way that you might normally train. Uh, but still, what a what a thing to have to go through. I guess all of us had to go through some of that, but it's, yeah, uh, I mean, you know, especially difficult. It was really difficult. I mean, it definitely retired athletes that were holding on for their last year, because if you're an older athlete, it doesn't sound like a lot. Oh, another year. Well, if you're already at the end and you only had enough in your tank for one more year, physically or emotionally, that was it. Like there was a lot of athletes that just were like, I can't push through. Even Simone Biles said it was really hard for her after they made the decisions for her to push for a whole nother year. It was really kind of just navigating those waters. And for me, I was training for track and I wanted track and field to be my last push. But then when things shut down, I, I was in shape because I had put all this uh, energy into Summer Olympics and then it was basically postponed a whole nother year. 
So I had all this energy and no track and field competitions. Well, surely enough, bobsled actually started before track. So I was like, well, let me just go back so I can just compete in something. I mean, I'm already in shape. So that's why I went back to, to bobsled. And then here wow. I am. Yeah. So this is, uh, and this may be not a question that you want to answer, but you know, at 38, here, get, I'll just give you the, the, my, I'm 46. I am in the best shape of my life. And also I wouldn't qualify for an Olympics of Dripping Springs, Texas, where I live. So I'm not trying for one second to suggest that at 46, I could do a single thing. But I, I have to imagine as an athlete, you're always thinking in some context of like how many more highest level competitions might you be able to compete in? You mentioned, hey, some people retire because of even just the simple shift of a year. Does it, is it a thing that you can even entertain while you're training? Is this the last time? Or do you ahead of time say to yourself, hey, this might be my last. I'm going to train like it might be. Or, or, or is it even a thing that kind of like enters your head? A little bit of both. It just, I guess it depends on who you are. I know some athletes that are like, this is absolutely my last season. I am done after this, you know, and then there's other athletes that, like you said, they're kind of on the fence. They're like, I'm just, I'm not going to really say it. I'm going to train as if it's my last, but I'm not going to actually put it out there in case I want to go one more year. So I think I'm more on like that side where I'm in my mind, I'm preparing for this to be my last Olympic push. But I would like to run some track races afterwards just to end my career in a track and field race. But I'm just going to kind of go where <laughs> wherever God wants me to go is where I'm going to, you know, if he wants me to be done after the Winter Olympics, then I will be done. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, do you ever look at like the, the skeet shooters at, who are contemplating if this is their last skeet shoot at 54 and be like, you know what, son of a gun? I'm 38 and I'm contemplating something that you don't have to think about for the next 10 years. And it, sorry, bad joke. I, I never think about the skeet shooters, but I have heard of like Olympians at like 80 or not. I forget who it was maybe like a, is some, some sport dealing with horses or something. So forget about the end. Uh, the end will be when it is meant to be when God suggests it is, or when you decide that it's time, let's start uh, with the beginning. Can you tell a little bit of how you got into competitive running, competitive anything. Is it true? I've heard this, that you didn't get your first pair of running shoes until you were in high school. Yeah, I, well, my family, we just, I grew up really poor. So, uh, I mean, I played sports in middle school, but I had to borrow my teammates basketball shoes. And that's what I used to, to run on uh, the track team. And if anybody knows shoes running in high tops, Thick, heavy, high tops are terrible to run a track race in where you want a small shoe that doesn't go over your ankle. So that was mistake number one. But we just I couldn't afford my family couldn't afford to get me running shoes because my dad was in prison. And so it was just that was impossible. So I just borrowed shoes. And then in high school, someone uh, gave me a pair of track spikes in the trunk of their car. And that's where, you know, I was able to kind of have some running shoes in that aspect. So it's a weird scenario looking back now and seeing where those shoes, like someone donating to me caused me to go on the right path to be a three-time Olympian. And so it just shows the power of someone just giving, you know, like that person who donated those shoes out of the trunk of their car had no clue I would end up representing the United States of America at so many games. They were just doing a simple act of kindness. And then those shoes changed my life forever. Well, I know after the Olympic trials in 2008, you donated money to victims of the Iowa flood. Is there like any connection to 
you being the recipient of someone giving you something to you wanting to give back or how, how does philanthropy like well, show up just, in your life? And- I give because based on my faith, I know that giving is, it's a whole perspective change. For me, it's just helped my life in tremendous ways. It's helped reset me. It's helped me be more grateful. Um, it's helped put me in a, a, a good mood when I sh- was, should have been in a terrible mood. And so, and it's also just giving back, you know, I did the, the flood victims, you know, growing up in Iowa, that's just obviously where I'm from. So I wanted to honor the people in the area uh, where I was raised. But I also did a with my foundation because I received, you know, shoes out of a trunk of a car. One of the things we did with my foundation is we we brought kids on a shopping spree. So these kids have incarcerated parents or single mothers. And we brought them on a shopping spree to Academy Sports and just gave them a gift card and let them like just go around the store and get shoes, uh, you know, sports apparel. So for me, that was like completely based off of my experience, like, you know, knowing that I got you shoes, wanting to help change the kid's life in that aspect. So yeah, I've, I've experienced giving in, in both ways where it was based off of an, a lifetime experience or just giving to just give. No purpose behind it, but just to give. So good. So it sounds like, I mean, every one of us has experienced adversity in some way, but you obviously, you just mentioned you've uh, come out of having not had a lot of money growing up, father who was incarcerated. How did that adversity, as much as it may not have been something that you signed up for or would be interested in necessarily having to go through again, help inform how you've approached competing or how maybe it, it acted as a catalyst for you getting into and being a part of something in a competitive landscape? Well, that's the definition of hurdles is like adversity. So literally they're putting something in your path. They are putting a hurdle in your way. And that hurdle is actually to prevent you from getting over it. And that's honestly the, the, the event I chose. I could have chose running the hundred meters, the mile, anything else, but the hurdles where it's like, okay, let's block your path and like find a way to get over it. But I think just with my upbringing and so many obstacles I had to overcome in life, um, it was just a natural kind of, of event I gravitated towards. I think when you face adversity in your life, it does. And I know it's so cliche, but it does make you stronger. I think about learning how to be a hurdler. Well, when I first started learning how to hurdle, I could only hurdle about one hurdle. Then I get better. I hurdle another. And then I now as a pro, I can hurdle like 12 to 15 hurdles in a row, even though a race is about 10. So as you, you know, get over more things, as you get over more adversity, you get stronger and stronger. And that applies to life. You know, things that used to stop you dead in your track, the more times that you have to face something, overcome something, you get stronger and stronger. So good. I love that. I saw a quote of yours at one point that reminds me of this, that uh, you don't think you learned your passion for track and field until you didn't make your first Olympic team. So here, faced with adversity, wanting something big, you go for it, don't make it. How did not making it actually create the passion? I don't know. That might have been misquoted because I've always had a passion (laughs) for running. I don't know if I uh, said that. I don't have been someone just reporter saying that, but I've always had a passion for running. I will say that not making my first Olympic team ignited a huge fire in me for sure. Like it definitely made me want it even more. You know, I worked definitely harder for it the next time around, made sure that I was not cutting any corners and improving in any way I could. 
So I think it just made me sharper, you know, like I think sometimes painful events just make you sharper. And um, that's what that one did for me. When you were growing up, you're in the midst of the adversity that you're inside of. I hear that you also left home in 10th grade. You leave home in 10th grade. What was it? What was it like to transition away from family at such a young age? Well, I didn't want to leave my family. So my dad was just returning from prison and he and my mom, uh, well, he had to find a job and he found a job in a small town in Iowa, but that uh, town didn't have a track team. And at that point, as a sophomore in high school, I was really talented in running and I was starting to get scholarship letters from all around the United States. And so it would be really dumb of me to go to a high school that didn't have a track team when I could get a scholarship and be the first one in my family to go to college, like finally break the cycle of poverty. So my family agreed that I would stay back in Des Moines. So I had to find someone to live with. So thankfully my summer track coach was able to find a foster parent for me to live with during that time. So my family left and I kind of lived with strangers throughout the rest of my years in high school. Unreal. God bless it. I mean, I'm sure there was something great that came from it, but also I imagine it was impossibly difficult too. Uh, Yeah, it was really difficult. You know, you're adjusting to new families and their kind of traditions and how they live. But it also prepared me because, you know, when you are training for the Olympics, you're dealing with all kinds of different personalities. And you're also dealing with uh, athletes from all around the world. A lot of people think that we only train with other Americans. Well, in track and field, I've trained with people that compete for Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, Granada. Like it's all over the Canadians. You're dealing with them and their backgrounds as well. So it kind of just prepared me to be more uh, uh, adaptable when uh, working with other people. Yeah. One of the things I think is so interesting about your job, like this career that you have, you spend six days a week training for a 12 second race and, and like separate from the, the, the bobsled for just a second. But like when you're doing your hurdle work, you're spending all of this time working, training, doing the thing that will make you the very, very best in the world at the Olympic level for a 12 second race. And I think it's interesting in part because so many of the things that we have to deal with in life end up actually being 12 second things. Uh, that might sound crazy, but I was at a baseball tournament over the weekend. It happened to be Father's Day, recording this the day after Father's Day. And I just found myself in real time having to deal with the like duality of celebrating one of my sons on a baseball field, killing it. Like they won the tournament, it was so good. And another of my sons complaining about not getting to have a snow cone after he just had a candy bar. (laughs) And that like 12 second reaction that I had to like choose, how do I want to show up on this Father's Day with my son? All the other parents are watching. Like life in some ways is training for 12 second moments, but I am interested separate from my weird tangent. Like how do you stay disciplined? How do you stay focused working six days a week to train for something that only takes 12 seconds to do? Oh, yeah, it gets tough because a lot of the workouts are very boring because you've done them a million times. And, you know, (laughs) you're like, oh, I have to do this again. And then like the self-discipline you have to have. 
but you know that every little thing that you don't cheat on uh, prepares you so much for when the big race, the big moment comes. And so I guess that's how you would actually make that pertain to life. It's the little things, right? Like that are not the big moments for the ice cream at the baseball game, but maybe more so in the house, those little daily moments where you're tired or exhausted as a parent, those little tugs every day that are just like working you, working you, working you, and you're just navigating through those. So that when you are out in public or there is a big thing that you have to handle as a parent, you're more prepared for. And so I think that's what gives me the motivation is knowing that those little things build up to something that I really need to uh, just be very strong for in the moment. And so if I cheat in the little things like, you know, if you are a bad parent behind closed doors, that's going to show when you need it the most, when you, when your kid needs you, needs your strength the most, if you have not practiced diligence, patience, kindness in those little moments in the closed doors, when you need it, and they need you, like, let's say something crazy happens at school, when they need your wisdom and guidance, they won't have you to rely on because you aren't well equipped as a parent. And so for me, even when no one's looking at a practice, and I could cheat, and I could cut corners and not do my abs here or do that. I know that that will all show the moment I need it the most. So that's what gives me motivation. And that's what helps push me through those longer workouts is because you know, those 12 second blowups, those can be game changers for life. So there's a saying as an Olympian, when you go to the Olympics, you're essentially competing for something that could be on your tombstone, 12, 12 seconds, because those who go on to get Olympic medalists, most of them on their tombstones, like the Olympic medalists of the, you know, 1996 games or the 2012 games, it's on their tombstone. So literally those 12 seconds determine a very lengthy amount of time. And that's the same thing as anybody, any human going through something, you know, when they have those big moments, even though they're brief, it's either going to make or break them. And it's going to put them on a course that's either going to set them back for life or propel them forward for life. Life comes down to a lot of 12 second moments. It really is crazy when you think about it. And I I love the analogy because the training we do as humans with habits and routines and whatever else prepares us to handle the 12 second moment. You happen to know when your 12 second moment is going to happen because the race date has been set. But all of us, I think, have a 12-second moment. We sometimes just don't know when it's going to show up. If we've been training, we'll be ready, which is so, so important. Many of us have not, and I mean many of us, have not experienced an Olympics the way that you've experienced an Olympics. I'm curious, like, what are your fondest memories of having been three times to an Olympics? What, like, what is it like to actually go as an Olympian to the Olympics? One of the things I'll never forget is walking in my first opening ceremonies. And that was in Beijing, China, because you don't really fully uh, know the impact you, you are as an athlete representing the United States of America until you are next to the flag bearer and you're, you're decked out in team USA apparel and you're walking with all your teammates. And then Behind you are other countries that are representing their, like their nationalities. And it's just, it's, I mean, I could not, I felt it to my soul. It was just, it was crazy walking around and just knowing that you are representing so many people back home watching you on TV. And so for me, I'll never forget the amount of like pride and just honor it was and the just how much I wanted to just do everyone justice with my running actions to for them to the country to be proud. So 
I'll never forget that. Never forget, you know, some of the moments hanging out with my teammates that just hanging out, just talking about whatever. And it's not even, it feels like you're just at home talking, you know, but you're at the Olympic games. So. Nah, it's so amazing. I look forward to, it was such a drag to have the summer games postponed. It's one of my favorite things in the entire world. Unbelievably, two of my children were born in the midst of the opening ceremonies of the Summer Olympics happening while we were still in the hospital. Like I have such fond memories of just like those days where there's sleeplessness and new human and like a lot of being awake, being able to look up at the screen and see everything that was happening with the opening ceremonies. So amazing. So cool. One of the things I love about you, I I love following you on uh, on the Instagram because you you. are a very normal human being. (laughs) I mean, I know that's a weird thing to say, but like, you like venting about your dating life or giving people a firsthand look at your workouts. Like you're just a normal human being who happens, by the way, to be an Olympian. I'm curious how you think about social. Like, is it a creative thing for you? Is it a connecting thing for you? Like what, what is it? What, what does Instagram or anything inside of social mean in your world? I don't know. I guess I forget that it's going to so many people and I feel like I'm just talking to like, it's like honestly like a diary to my friends you know and then I forget oh my gosh like it will be on like Yahoo News if I like talk about a date that I'm like oops <laughs> I'm like I just <laughs> go on there it's like sometimes I'm venting about having a bad date and then so what I, now I have to like be careful because you know I don't want the person to be offended so now I put the dates out of order or like sometimes I might not talk about a date until like six months or maybe a year or I'll remember something and then talk about it as if it's present time because I don't want the person to be offended even though it did happen you know <laughs> so <laughs> it's so funny more like a diary rant I think the main thing I want to do on my social media is one, inspire people who are, who are, who are hopeless or give them a laugh. I suffer from depression. And so I want to just reach out to those people that as well have suffer from any mental illness. It's really tough, especially with COVID going on. It was really hard on a lot of people, especially those people that, uh, those that were living alone. And then the third thing, which is just like, <laughs> Anybody who's single, they're frustrated. So just give some jokes and encouragement for those groups because I feel like a lot of people, they have more, uh, you know, maybe one day I'll be able to talk and rant about families, but I don't I don't have any kids. So I just try to just tell my dating stories and it, it, it seems to encourage a lot of uh, singles out there. And also it makes a lot of married people laugh and maybe appreciate their marriages more because it is the wild, wild west in these dating streets. So maybe if a married person hears my dating stories, like, well, I'm so glad I'm married. Uh, I'm going to go be nicer to my spouse right now. Lolo, if you want to come by and grab a couple of my kids anytime you're in Texas, <laughs> just for the experience, you can borrow them just for like a oh, weekend. I have, I have nine nieces and nephews, so I know all about the hard work it takes to be a parent because I only have them for like a day or two and I'm like ready to, uh, I need a break. (laughs) It's a drink, right? I mean, like I love my kids. And also like if I'm being wistful about the future, I can get really excited about being a grandparent where I'm like, oh, bring your, bring your grandbabies over for like three hour bursts and I will love on them. And then 
you take them on down the road. Go yeah. ahead, just take them right on down the road. Thank you very much for coming by. <laughs> we mentioned your nonprofit, but we didn't uh, name it by name. Tell me a little bit more about Hurdles for Hope. What was the inspiration to start it? And what do you hope people get from it? How can people, uh, if they are interested, uh, learn a little bit more about it? Hurdles of Hope is a foundation I started for single mothers or kids with incarcerated parents. And it's just to just help them navigate through uh, poverty, hardships. I started it because when I grew up, my dad was in and out of prison. My mom, you know, she was struggling to take care of five kids. So we relied on a lot of charities and foundations to help us, whether it was to help us pay our water bill or, you know, give us food on Thanksgiving or Christmas. Like we had so many foundations and charities or churches help us out over my childhood that I started to just to help give back as well to those in the same similar uh, situation. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited. Like after the Olympics, I want to do a big event. But right now it's like I've kind of put everything on pause because my energy is I don't have enough energy to <laughs> plan anything big right now. But after the Olympics, I'm, I'm really excited to put more of my focus and talents and energies on that. That's awesome. Can you contemplate life after competing? Or is it a thing that you can't even think about while you're in the midst of training? Like, I, I want to ask you what's next, but I'm also, oh, like, I don't even know if question. you're allowed to ask. Are you allowed to ask what's next? Yeah. <laughs> and people have been asking me that question since I was like 27. I was like, uh, I'm still running. Like, I have, yeah. Yeah. So I've been getting this question for a while. The good news is because I've had so many injuries over my career, I have kind of uh, dabbled with what I would do after being an athlete. So even though the injuries were uh, terrible in the moment, they actually became blessings because, I mean, I would work with TV to do world championships for track and field or NCAA track and field championships. So I learned that I had a great passion for storytelling, like getting athlete stories on the other side, letting the audience get to know these athletes more personal. So I've enjoyed that and I'll probably move into that. I mean, I've thought about being a coach, but whew, that's, a lo- that's, a really, <laughs> that's a really tough lifestyle. <laughs> and, and I think after traveling so much as a pro athlete that I would want kind of more of a stable job where I'm not traveling so much. Guess what? You don't have to figure it out until after you're done representing us in this yeah, next Olympics. So true. stay focused. This is amazing. All right. Uh, if people do not currently follow you, and man, are they missing out, or they want to know a little bit more about you, where can they go on the interwebs to learn more about you, Lolo Jones? Well, everything is my name, Lolo Jones. So uh, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. <laughs> I got to get back on TikTok. I took a little break. But uh, that was like my little, I think it was everybody's hobby during quarantine, right? So, um, but yeah, it's super easy. Just, you know, type in my name and yeah, that's where let the diary rants begin, right? Let's go. All right, Lolo, uh, I hear that you have a book coming out. It's called Over It. I'm curious, one, what was the inspiration to write this book and what do you hope readers get from it? I wrote over it. Well, it's a double meeting. So if you look at it, the this is my book cover and over it is over it as in you're so freaking frustrated. You're over it. Like you're one step from quitting. But then the other meaning of that is get over it. Like as a hurdler over it, I'm getting over it. And so I wrote this book because there's a lot of inspirational books out there, right? You know, how to get your dream job, how to get married. There's so many books out there. And most of the time they are written by people on the other side of that coin. They have the successful marriage. They have the great job. They're, you know, they're on the other side saying, this is how you get it. Well, 
I know I introduced myself earlier as a three-time Olympian, three-time world champion, but I'm also a three-time Olympic losing athlete. I've gone to the Olympics three times now and been very close to a medal, so, so close every single time. But I'm still in this battle. And so I wrote this book for the people that are still in the fight, that are very frustrated. They feel like they've come close to their dreams so many times, but yet they keep getting knocked down. They keep having failures. They want to give up. They're running out of energy. They're hopeless. So I wrote this book to inspire those people, telling them like, look, I'm still in this fight with you. This is what I've learned over my years. This is what I've learned from my failures. And this is how I pick myself up every single time. So I hope that it encourages people and inspires them to pursue their dreams. And yeah, it was a a labor of love. And it's, you know, I wrote it over COVID period. And so I hope that people can feel the frustration if they're in a mess and then just find some encouragement to get out of it. Let's go. What What's the date that it comes out? It comes out July 20th. So it's we're about a month away from it dropping. But right now people can pre-order and they'll get access to three chapters. They'll also get access to Abide Meditations and they can just check it out. And yeah, I've, I'll be doing live readings on my Instagram if they want uh, to see more about the book or hear more about it. Awesome. All right. So look in the show notes, humans that are in real time listening to this podcast. We're going to put a link to Lolo's book. Make sure that you jump in and get this book. Over It is the name. It comes out late July and there are plenty of pre-order incentives. So we're going to put this episode out just around the time that it's coming out, but make sure you snatch up these incentives while they last. All right, last question. It's the question we ask every person who's a guest on the podcast. If you could leave our listeners today with a single uh, idea, a question, a piece of actionable advice, what is the single thing that you would leave the people listening to the podcast today? I would just say failures can be your biggest motivation if you use them correctly. A lot of times failures set people back. It depletes them. It makes them hopeless. But use it as motivation. Use it as fuel to your fire to just get back up, try again, and achieve your dreams. Um, Most Olympians I know failed over and over and over again until they finally had success. So if you want to achieve greatness, just be prepared that you're going to have failures. You're going to lose. You're going to have moments where you want to give up, but just keep pressing on. Take one more step. So good. All right, ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this episode and how in the heck could you have not, please take a picture of the device you're listening to it on. Tag myself and Lolo. Tell every human being that you've ever met. And between now and next week, reframe some failure. Turn it into fuel. Thank you for listening today. Thank you, Lolo, for being a guest on the Rise Together podcast. Thank you for having me. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.